Hi, my name is Allison and I'm here with Charles and this is the third episode of the Faith Misunderstood podcast brought to you by the River Church in New York City. Um, if you're here listening live, welcome. We're so glad that you're here with us. Please comment in the chat and let us know where you're listening from. Um, and today we are going to be diving into the topic of suffering. Uh, so if you have any questions about suffering, please go ahead and ask those questions right now and we'll do our best uh, to address them. All right, Charles, let's dive right in. So <clears throat> when we suffer unexpected setbacks, when bad things happen to us out of the blue, how should we understand it? Are we getting punished by God for our sins or is something else going on? Thanks, Allison. Hello, everyone. Uh, hope you are enjoying today. It's a beautiful day in New York. New York. Feels like uh, really nice fall weather. So, hey, take it where we can get it, right? So, what a great question. This is a question that has come up quite a few times in my time as a pastor over the last 20 years. A lot of people feel, including myself, when something unexpected happens that's bad, I think it's natural to wonder, am I getting punished uh, by God for something I did for my sins? And that was kind of the you know, majority thinking for a very long time, um, East and West, uh, across cultures. So it's very natural to wonder about these questions. Am I getting punished for my sins? Uh, did I do something wrong? How can I uh, do better? Um, it's natural to wonder, and I don't mean to knock it out, knock it down, but the Bible is fairly clear that it's not the right way to think about uh, bad things that happen to us. Uh, book of Job is a whole book dedicated to that question, really. And again and again in that book, uh, friends of Job come and say, you are suffering, you must have done something wrong. Uh, there must be some hidden sin, because uh, on the outside you are a righteous person, but, you know, no human being is without sin. So, there you are, you are getting punished. You know, God is just. And the whole point of the book is that kind of thinking is no good. God is very angry about that kind of thinking. God is very angry with Friends of Job for advancing. And when you think about it, when someone's suffering, to go to them and say, well, you deserve it, whatever happened to you, because you are a sinner, <laughs> that's not exactly a very comforting and loving thing to do, right? And so God says that's not the right way to think about it. The world is very complex. Uh, it's beyond your comprehension. That is kind of the answer from the book of Job. And Jesus follows that up. In Matthew uh, chapter 5, Jesus makes it very clear that God sends the sun to both the good and the evil and the rain to both righteous and the unrighteous equally. That his teaching seems to indicate that that it's not the case that uh, the, only the bad people suffer and they are the ones who get bad things. Uh, it seems like God sends equal treatment to everyone equally. And the parable of the prodigal son also uh, indicates that, that there is a good son and a terrible son. 
and it's a terribly unrighteous son who gets all this lavish good gifts from the father representing God, and the righteous good son doesn't even get a goat. <laughs> it seems kind of random that way. So we cannot think that way, that God only punishes the bad and evil people. And when you think just a little deeper, that's very obvious because if, if God were to do that, then, then it would be like Stepford Wives again, right? Like we talked about this. It would be like God manipulating everything. What's the point of creation if you are like coursing obedience from the creation by just making it so very obvious that the only way to survive is being good and righteous? <laughs> Uh, if God is justice, and if God was after obedience, then yeah, then we could see that happening. But that would be a little like robotic, that would be coercive. But the Bible is very clear, God is love. God is unconditional love, and love requires choice. And with that, it's not a good idea to think that it's just so clear as to be so coercive in terms of, well, you sinned, so you're going to get punished, so better not, you know, don't be naughty because Santa Claus is making a list. That's not the way to think about these things, according to the Bible. So related to that, people want to know, if there's a good God, then why do bad things happen to good people? Right, so if it's not because of the sin, or maybe like we think these are good people, but they are really sinners, like Job's friends thought, that if that's not the case, if these are really good people, like Job was, and then suffering happens to them, like how can there be a good God up there, <laughs> like letting that kind of injustice happen? And a lot of people are very upset with that thought. Um, so, the question is very natural. Why do bad things happen to good people if there is a good God up there? And that's been a question that people have asked for thousands of years. And it's not clear if there's like a satisfying answer for everyone that's clear. But I think I can give a perspective on this in that it assumes the question itself assumes that there is a God up there. And it's like a mad scientist or a very controlling being that is controlling everything on earth and therefore God is responsible for bad things that happen. And, and that God predestines everything. In fact, that has been a very big uh, line of thought within Christianity that God before everything happens, God has actually destined all these things to happen on earth. And so how can there be bad things that happen to good people if God is predestining everyone and their destinies? Uh, then God's character comes into question. Uh, if God is the one, you know, manipulating everything like that. Um, I want to challenge that assumption itself, how we are seeing that question itself. Any question has assumptions built into it. And the question itself takes on a different hue if you take a different assumptions uh, to begin with. So predestination, 
like bef any, before anything happens, God deciding everything. There are passages in the Bible that seems to be supportive of that idea. However, God is outside time. God is bigger than time. God creates light, according to the Bible. And light is the foundation of time. Like, you know, that if you just travel at the speed of light, that time doesn't pass for you. And so, God is outside time. So, how do we even impose a question like, before anything happens, on a being that is outside time? It's nonsensical. It's like the whole question doesn't stand. I don't know if you ever heard of this book called Flatland, uh, or something. I think it's called Flatland. It's a novel about how, uh, how the... It's a novel about two-dimensional universe, and somehow a three-dimensional being gets dropped into it. Mm. And all kinds of paradoxes, you know, these two-dimensional beings can't figure it out. Because, you know, like how is it possible that this three-dimensional being appears out of nowhere? Or like all kinds of paradoxical things happen in a, in a two-dimensional world where they are not paradoxical in three dimensions. So basically, the point of the book is, when you go higher in the dimension, paradoxes that are uh, intrinsic to the dimension itself are no longer paradoxes. So time, time, we, 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 are a four, we exist in four dimensions, three dimensions of space and time. If you go beyond that, and if you're in five dimensions, or presumably God, who is much bigger than all of that, then any questions pertaining to time becomes nonsensical. You cannot apply those questions to a bigger dimensional being. So I think we need to like be careful about trying to understand the being that is outside our dimension and trying to capture it in our understanding, in our language, in our reality. And so I don't think God is just making everything happen. We are like little puppets and we really don't have any will. Uh, what's the whole point? <laughs> uh, what if God were not up there just puppeteering everything? What if it was more like how Jesus taught that God is divine and we are the branches? That God is everywhere and we are connected to God. In fact, we have our being, we have our life and everything inside God. As Acts 17 says, that that's the case. We have our being and our life and our breath and everything inside God. And we are connected like vine and the branches. That God is not up there. God is with us. And, uh, and that God invites us to partake in the ongoing act of creation. And that our choices matter. When we go to bathroom, matters. <laughs> what we do moment to moment does have impact on reality. A reality as fruit. Fruit of the branches is how reality takes shape. And God sets all the parameters of possibilities on our lives. God invites us, like let the earth produce fruit. God doesn't produce fruit. God invites the earth to produce fruit and sets the parameters of probabilities uh, of what the earth can do. Like I cannot fly. That's been said. The parameters are set. In that way, I think God could be controlling everything. But the probability curve is what God controls. And what we do, things kind of happen. If we think of it in those terms, then, yeah, bad things can happen to good people because, you know, 
there are like seven billion branches in just two human beings in this vine, and there is the earth, and there are the insects, and there is, you know, tectonic shifts, and everything is within God, and all of that is interacting with each other in a complex system within very complex probability curves, and so things happen depending on what we do and what the earth does and what the insects do and what the climate does and all of that interacts and stuff happens. If one branch like decides to like choke off the other branch next to it, that's the branch's choice. And you know, if one branch like takes over and no sunlight goes to the other branch, you know, the other branch could die. Evil takes place. God lets evil happen uh, within this system because without it there is no meaning. And so, with all of our choices in our acting, a lot of things happen, and it cannot be controlled in that way. So bad things happen to good people in that sense. Doesn't mean that God doesn't care, doesn't mean that God is not on our side, doesn't mean that God as divine is pushing up all the nutrients and trying to get us and all the branches towards a good place, but also God has given branches and the creation choice and how to move about. And with that choice comes these kinds of events. And it's really the only setup where love becomes possible. So a question that often comes up is, um, <clears throat> if God is all-powerful and all-loving, then why does suffering exist at all? Is God not all-powerful? Is God not loving? Um, or is there another way to think about it? Right. And, and so that's again another question that if we think of God as being up there and controlling everything, then either God is a sadistic evil person or being, given all the, the suffering and evil that's on earth, or that God is not all powerful, uh, that God doesn't have the power, is powerless to, to prevent or like see all this stuff happens. And, that creates a lot of questions and doubts and difficulties in people. Um, a lot of people become atheists because of that uh, dilemma. And that's a really good question. But again, I think it's the limitations of the assumptions behind the question. If God is divine and we are the branches, instead of God sitting up there with a you know, lightning rod, <laughs> you know, like Zeus or something, uh, if we think of God instead, like what I've been talking about, then it's not necessary that God is evil or not all-powerful for this, this, this reality to exist. God could be divine, and God is this, you know, pretty much all-powerful, except God cannot do paradoxical things, right? Like questions like, can God create a rock that's so heavy that God cannot lift it? Well, that's just a logical nonsense, right? I mean, either way, you lose, right? But if God cannot create such a heavy rock, then God cannot do something. But if God cannot lift that rock, then God cannot do something. It's a logical non-sequitur. So it's like that. Like, we can kind of think of God as all-powerful, but all-powerful in what sense? You cannot just get rid of logic, period. So if God wants love, if God wants creation to have meaning, certain parameters have to be in place. 
like God cannot be puppeteering everyone and say, oh, this is a meaningful creation and there is love, oh, yay. You can't have it both ways, right, logically. And so since Bible proclaims that God is love, God is agape, then right there uh, invites certain parameters and certain constrictions, such as meaning, meaningful choice. And when we think in those terms, this creation is incredible. It's an incredible to contemplate the beauty of this creation and also the meaning of this creation, that my words and actions have meaning. That's a precious thing. That's, that's not easy to exist. Uh, for example, if God were to really predetermine everything, there is no meaning <laughs> to any choices. But if there is no God, everything is just absolutely random, and we are just all chemicals who evolved by chance to this form, then none of our actions have any meaning either. I, I mean, it's just all chemicals, like doing things uh, randomly, and one day this will all cease to exist, sun will burn out, the universe will go cold one day, and nothing of nothing <laughs> will remain. We'll all be atomized. And how can you derive meaning from such random um, view of how reality works? Uh, even if I do something good, it's just my chemicals in my brain randomly firing, and for that random moment, randomly just happen. How can you like really assign meaning to any action in that kind of worldview? So either way, it's very difficult to have a worldview where our life actually has meaning. Love actually has meaning. That I love someone actually has meaning. That's not easy. That's precious. Uh, it, it's very difficult to create a parameters where such an existence is even possible. So I marvel at the creation because I do believe my life and your life and everyone's life and actions and choices and words do actually have meaning. That our lives, as fleeting as it is, actually have eternal meaning. That our existence is not just random chemicals or just predestined puppet, you know, which neither of which is really valuable. But your life and my life and everyone's life actually has value, has meaning. And for that to happen, it's this kind of view where God has invited the creation to partake in the shaping of the ongoing act of creation with your choices that actually has meaning, meaningful consequences um, within the probability curve where the invitation exists, whereas before it was all random uh, chaos mm -hmm. and darkness and the void, as the Bible would say, before the light existed. Um, that's a, a remarkable thing to contemplate. can blow your mind to really like think deeper about what does that really mean that my life actually has meaning, that my action can have meaning. And so um, that's where I think God has given us that kind of free will and meaning while having that kind of like overarching kind of sense of meaning 
because there is a God who is the arbiter of what meaning is, because God is love. That is where God is not powerless, mm-hmm. you know, and not all-powerful in the sense of puppeteering everything, but perhaps even more powerful than our mind can even conceive of, in that God has created this shape or this reality. Um, so God is not powerless and not yet not all-powerful in the sense of our assumptive powerful, like everything is controlled by God. That in that in, in that in that both and world, uh, suffering does exist uh, because of meaning, and our actions have meaning because suffering exists, mm-hmm. uh, and all of it comes together in that way. So I know that was a lot to take in. Thank you, Charles. If you have any questions about anything that was just said, please put them in the chat now, and then we'll address them. Um, But in the meantime, I want to ask you this. So some people find comfort in phrases like everything happens for a reason or God has a plan. Uh, What's your take on phrases like that? Right. So phrases like God, like when something bad happens, we think it's kind of comforting to be able to say God has a plan. Or if some child dies, you know, the popular saying could be, you know, God wanted the child back, or the child was too good for the world, so God took him, took the child. Uh, that God had a plan behind this. I don't think that's very comforting to the person, actually. Uh, it's uh, it, that there is this grand plan, so that that there is a plan, grand plan for the greater good so that one individual could be sacrificed or their happiness or your happiness could be sacrificed by losing your child or your parents to cancer or some evil. Um, To take comfort in the fact that there is a grander plan and that this one sacrifice contributes to the plan, I don't think that's that great. It goes against Jesus' teaching, actually, when Jesus talked about how God goes after the one lost sheep, leaving the 99 behind. You remember that teaching? That God isn't like us, where we would say, like, oh, you know, 99 is more important. So within the grand plan, that sheep is like suffering out there while, you know, let the sheep die. It's fine. But that's not how God operates that one sheep is important to God. Um, That there is no greater good that God is willing to sacrifice one sheep for. That one sheep is infinitely precious (laughs) to God. Um, And that's an interesting teaching, right? That that goes against this idea that there's a greater plan for the greater good so little individuals can be sacrificed, which is sort of a totalitarian kind of thinking. it's the Christianity, the idea that Christ died on the cross for you and me, that's exchanging God incarnate's life for human beings. 
And so it doesn't seem like our places uh, numerical value points to different people and say, well, this person's value is five and 100 people value is 5,000, so let's get rid of five. It's more of infinitive, like each person's value is equivalent to the life of God incarnate, which makes it infinite. And you can't really like measure infinite with other infinite. And mathematically, one infinity is as great as a thousand infinities. I mean, infinite is infinite, you know? And so you can't make that kind of like exchange value that there is a greater good, there was a plan. And so let's take comfort in that. Um, that's more thinking like God is puppeteering things and that there is a plan and God is making things happen. I, as I said, I don't think that's the right way to view it. That runs into all kinds of problems. That's intractable. But if, I, if we think of it more in terms of God divine and the branches us and our choices actually have you know, meaning and has consequences, then you, it's, it's possible to say that there is a plan in that probability curves are within God's domain and so God controls all probability curves on each branches. But it's not fair to say that this is God's plan to make that particular thing happen, like Holocaust. Was that God's greater plan? You know, that, yeah, Holocaust, six million Jews got killed on the gas chamber, doesn't matter if they're good people, bad people, they just got killed. Because there was a greater plan? I don't think we can say that. I think that would make God out to be some kind of evil being. And so I'm against that kind of thinking. That's not how it works. I'm sure God was very grieved by what happened. There. That was not God's desire. That was not what God was attempting to influence us or invite us towards. But the branches do have power within the probability curve to make such things happen. And God cannot just intervene and just say, well, branches want to go this direction and kill all these Jews, but I, as God divine, I'm just going to not make that happen. If that were to happen, then it's back to puppeteering, you know, then what's the point, you know, it's not gonna work, can't be done that direct, that way, and so God has to give respect to the choices we make if there is to be any meaning, like if I just jumped out of this building and fell, and God said, well, Charles is a good guy, so let's just stop the gravity from working right there and let him live. Well, then there is no meaning to like stepping out of the window. <laughs> There's no meaning to anything I do if it gets violated like that. So I don't like that phrase that there is a greater plan. Um, so this evil can be you know, understood in that light. No, the evil is evil. It should be resisted, grieved, uh, we should be angry at it, we should stand against it, and we should say this is not of God. You know, this is not what God divine is inviting us into, rather than saying, no, there's a greater plan. 
And so, you know, let's take some comfort in this. I think that's false comfort. Another common viewpoint is that God sends challenges to test our faith. What do you think about that idea? Right. So there is a, a, a big line of thinking around that because there's Bible passages. Of, it's not all over, but there's maybe some passages that you could uh, pick up and support that line of thinking. And I don't 100% know. Um, I do think every suffering does test our faith, doesn't it? <laughs> so whether it is God intentionally kind of looking at you and going, hmm, let's say, Allison, I think you really need to be tested because I'm really unsure of your faith right now. So let's just test you for now. Is that much going on? Or is it that every suffering tests your faith? And in that faith in that we have meaning, faith in that human beings are precious beings, faith in that um, there is a God, uh, faith in that there is hope, that love means something. All those things take faith. Uh, it's just as easy or easier to believe we're just chemicals. And somehow we arose and nothing has any meaning and just we just live our lives and then we die and so just really the best thing you can do is just be as happy as you can get while you are alive and then you die. But people have tried stuff like that for thousands of years uh, from you know, schools of thought, like Epicureans or others, hedonists, um, um, and universally, the strangest thing is that human beings are not very happy when they go that direction. It doesn't satisfy people universally over time. That there's something deeper in our hearts that cry out for deeper satisfaction. So that's, I think, a clue. Because if it's universal across time, then it's something. And that the fact that it exists, that hunger for deeper existence, hunger for meaning, hunger for love that actually has meaning, that seems to indicate that we are bigger or more than just chemicals. Um, if we're just chemicals interested in propagating our DNA, I would think that the biggest motivation is just get as powerful as you can get and get as many children as you can get. That's it. That's all there is, really, if we're all chemicals. But somehow there is a deeper hunger. And I think that indicates that we are meant for bigger things. And given that, uh, we should be thinking through all those things. And um, I got a little digressed. The question was what? Uh, About God testing our faith. Yes, testing our faith. Yeah. And so I don't think it's God testing our faith. It's more that every suffering tests our faith in all those things. Mm -hmm. We can get depressed. We can get so angry that we want to burn it all down. We want to protect our hearts so we disconnect from anyone and everyone. 
and we just deny that there's even better things that's even possible. And so we can kind of live in despair in that way. Yeah. And, and that hasn't satisfied anyone. And so I think suffering just by itself intrinsically tests our faith. And that way I think Bible passages that say suffering uh, can test our faith is true. But I don't think it's the case that God is like, okay, let's just send suffering to so-and-so because their faith is weak and I need to see where they can come up with. I think that's, again, a faulty assumption. God is divine. We are the branches. And God is just always on our side and always trying to push up nutrients to us, whether we are good or evil. So he's always trying to bring us to a good place, like parable of the prodigal son, that younger son was a very bad son. But God is, God doesn't even like scold the younger son. There is no, have you learned your lesson? You know, now you have been tested and now you're back. So now let's do better. There is zero. God seems completely uninterested in that. What God does seem to be interested in is to show God's love and for the children to show love back. That's very clear from that story that this father is only interested in love, yeah. nothing else. So test, testing our faith as if, can you imagine a parent that goes, okay, I want to just, you know, make you have an accident and suffer for the rest of your life because I want to test whether you love me or not. I mean, what kind of parent would that be? That would be pretty evil. So let's not insult God and blaspheme by making God out to be like that kind of evil character. So the final question for today is about prayer. So. Does prayer make any kind of difference when we're suffering? And if so, how does it work? Right, great question. When we are suffering, does prayer help? I think most people when they're suffering pray for the removal of the suffering. And most times it doesn't work. Some people claim that it works every single time if you do it the right way. Um, and so they kind of like set themselves up as like the guru can teach you how to pray the right way to make it work. I don't think that's how it works. It's even Jesus could not, the Bible said, could not in the book of Mark, in chapter 102, could not perform uh, these healing miracles um, because of certain reasons. And I don't think we can get better than Jesus. <laughs> and so I don't think it's the case that we can just assume that our prayer isn't working because we are not praying hard enough or we are not praying in the right way. Even the most righteous person could suffer and continue to suffer. And I know many people who are very good people who got prayer from all kinds of major prayer gurus and never got healed. Um, I got prayer so many times over my back pain, um, it never got better. Um, it's, uh, it becomes kind of insulting to the people who don't get their prayer answered 
to say that it's just because you are sinful or you didn't pray the right way. It's not like God is a prayer-answering vending machine, you know, and if you press the right button, God will just move for you. That's not the way to think about it. I think, again, we are supposed to think about it in terms of God is divine, we are the branches, and that God is not withholding anything from us as we are. That's what the Bible actually tells us, that God who did not withhold Jesus Christ, God's own Son, why would God withhold anything but freely give us all things to Romans? And so it's giving us a picture of God who is very eager and willing to give us all things as it is. So then the question becomes, why haven't I won the lottery yet? Right? <laughs> if I'm supposed to freely get everything I want, why haven't I gotten all the things I... So again, I think we have to think about it in terms of God, divine, we the branches. That God is pushing up the nutrients, but there is it's a very complex, complex system. And our choices matter, other people's choices matter, all these things are interacting. And so prayer can help because prayer can plug us into that God divine in whom we already have our being. And so in that sense, it could improve our probability curve. It's not magical in that it can just change things. But our probability curve could, the parameters could shift somewhat positive. Doesn't guarantee anything, but it can lead to statistically significant better outcomes if we keep praying for better outcomes. I think there have been even studies where like thinking positively and praying, you know, those kinds of things do have some small effect on outcomes of fatal diseases. Not a lot, but small. So that seems to indicate more of a slight shift in the probability bell curve rather than automatic, okay, if you pray, bam, it happens. If you pray the right way, bam, magically, you're going to get healed. Again, that goes back to why does God bring suffering to good people? Why doesn't God automatically just bring good things to good people? That becomes coercive. If you pray, and you pray in the right way, and every single time you pray the right way, it just works, and so you live without any cancer or any disease for a thousand years just because you prayed right, then, then it becomes coercive. That's a reward for the good, punishment for the bad. And that's not what Jesus taught. It's not exactly like that. But the prayer can improve inner disposition. Your heart could go softer. Your heart could, when you're suffering and you're praying and it doesn't work and you continue to suffer, you know, and I know from my personal experience, it can turn dark it can kind of go to despair and rage and you kind of want the world to burn down. <laughs> and you start like, you can start to like dismiss anything good or meaningful in this world. And you can disconnect and become a dark person inside. And I think that's the true tragedy that whatever life we are given, whatever days we have, we don't know how many days we have. We could, 
Nobody knows. This could be the last day for any of us. And whatever days we have, it'll be better to live with an open heart and a heart that's light, realistic, but not in this dark way of looking at the whole world, everybody's just animals, we're just all chemicals, it's kill and be killed. There's no meaning in this world, let's just take advantage of people. And what is, what is there to life? Like that kind of place doesn't make you happy in the days you live. It's a very dark place. It's a anger-filled place, not a happy place. And so what prayer can do is keep your heart soft by keeping you connected to the vine uh, that whispers of the bigger things, of the greater things, of meaning, of things of the soul, things of the heart. And it can open your eyes and your hearts and, and softer towards the light, towards meaning, towards um, seeing the beauty in this world seeing beauty in every person that walks by you. And that makes life much better in quality. Uh, life in all its fullness, Jesus said, is what he came to give. Now, the life moves towards more fullness that way. So prayer really helps in both ways. And I think the greater impact is that kind of being connected to the greater realities of this world. But also it can shift your probability curves positively somewhat. And so it's not magic, but it does have, you can have better outcome possibly. So why not give it a try? Well, thank you so much, Charles, for those helpful perspectives. Uh, we hope that you enjoyed uh, this discussion today. Uh, we'd love it if you would join us again next week, uh, same time, Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern time. Um, our topic for next week will be LGBTQ. Uh, so we'll be tackling any kind of impossible questions around that topic. If you have any questions, uh, please submit them by commenting on this video or emailing us at podcast at rivernyc.org. Uh, we'd also love it if you would like this video, comment, sharing any thoughts you have about the discussion, um, and subscribe to our channel so that you can get notified when uh, we post new videos. Uh, thank you so much, and we'll see you next week.